scripture reading for this morning's uh, sermon is found on page 6 and 7, or you can follow along in, uh, in your Bible in the book of Hebrews. We'll be skipping through a few different passages. I'm going to begin with the second passage listed, Hebrews 10, uh, 19, and uh, we're extending that through verse 25. And then I'll continue with uh, the reading from Hebrews 12 and Hebrews 13. The word of the Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us now, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews 12. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of trumpet and a voice whose words from made the hearers beg that they that they no further messages be spoken they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned indeed so terrifying was the sight that moses said i tremble with fear but you have come to mount zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And now Hebrews 13, 10 through 16. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Amen. Let's pray once again. O Lord. Give us understanding, we pray, by that, Lord, not just intellectual comprehension, but, Lord, may our hearts be formed by your word. May our lives take on the shape of your gospel. Lord, may your greatness and goodness shine into our lives. May we be transformed by your glory, Lord. We thank you that you are eager to reveal your majesty and to continually change your people. 
We rest in you and look to you to do that. For your name's sake. Amen. I'm going to begin with what really should be is a kind of introduction. You always start with an introduction, right? Um, but it's going to be a bit longer, so I'm going to make it our first point. So you get it all rolled into one for the same price. So that's really good, huh? Um, this The first thing I want to talk about is that our insides, uh, I'm going to put it this way, our insides have been formed and are being formed. Our insides have been formed along the way and are being formed. We sometimes say, uh, my gut reaction, hope you don't mind my using the word gut. Um, By that we mean, this is not a carefully thought out, this is not the result of intellectual analysis, this isn't necessarily even a right reaction. This is just my right now, real life response to what you just said. Okay, that's my, my gut reaction. And we all know the disconnect between what we know and how we live. Like what's going on here or what's going on in the gut or the heart or the emotions. Sometimes they can be so far apart, right? We're this composite in many ways of how we've been loved or haven't been loved. We're a composite of hurts and losses and pain and fear and confusion along with scattered joys and satisfactions in our lives. And many times these things have been experienced when faith in God was non-existent or early in, in its infancy. And so we formed uh, ways to cope with life, ways to navigate life. We were hardwired in some way, formed into some hard clay in different ways and shapes that caused for us to have a picture of things, a perception of things, an imagined reality that is the result of all that's gone into me and, and my reactions to those things. So I see life in a certain way, many times very differently from the way life is and very differently from the way God sees life. But this is my perception. This is my imagination about the way things are, who I am and how I navigate things. This me uh, can be very different than what I know. I know how I should treat my friends and my family, my husband, my wife, my children, brothers, sisters... But how I treat them in a given instance is a very different thing. That's me acting at the gut level. And it's interesting, sometimes we'll say, that wasn't me, I don't know why I did that, that's not really who I am. Well, that is who I am. When When I'm short with my wife, Kay, it's Darwin that's short with Kay. Because Darwin is a short person. Yeah, it's a double whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> um, shortness marks him. Okay? It still percolates in his heart and exercises control. 
He may be short with her because he's scared and insecure because he really did make a wrong turn and he can't admit it. It's hard for him to admit that he messed up even in something so small because he views it as a threat to his very significance as a person. He may not can admit that he's wrong because he still doesn't fully rest in God's acceptance of him. Doesn't he know that he shouldn't be that way? Doesn't he know what Ephesians 5 says, that you love your wife as Christ loved the church? Doesn't he know what 1 Peter 3 says, that you should live with her in knowledge, in understanding, knowing her as the weaker vessel? Doesn't he know what it says about kindness and gentleness, even with your enemies, much less your wife? Doesn't he know that? Doesn't he know what Colossians 3 says? Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved. Don't be harsh with them. Doesn't he know that? Yeah, but (laughs) in his gut, in his old way of viewing life, his old perspective, the hardwired reaction to embarrassment and shame and failure, the pride and self-promotion that will run over the feelings of a precious woman in order to save itself. What is going on there? And of course, in doing so, loses itself, right? All of this is this construct of self, this image of who I am, of what life is, where threats come from, how I maintain equilibrium in this world, how I navigate and cope... It even pertains to what I think the good life is and how I'm going to be happy. Some strange, twisted way, I'm trying to be happy by being short with my wife. What in the world? And not only do I have this seething construct that thankfully the Holy Spirit has invaded... And now is working on me because he says from your innermost being will flow rivers of living water to anybody who trusts in him helplessly. What good news is that? Good news to us who wonder what's going on in our hearts. Lord, search me and know me and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The heart is desperately wicked. It's deceptive above all else. Who can understand it? Oh, Lord, thank you that you come and invade my life by your spirit. So I've got this, but then also I'm being influenced uh, constantly by a world that just doesn't come at me intellectually. In fact, most of the time, though there is some of that, Most of the time, the world is coming after my gut, so to speak. The world is coming after my love, my desires, coming to me in entertainment and advertising and presentation of its wares, in pictures and images and stories. It's calling me and wooing me to its vision of a good life, to its promise of human flourishing. And again, it's not that the world is getting all philosophical with me. It's really going for what I am, what I want, what I think life is. And though I'm new in Christ, 
So though I'm new in Christ, I still carry these uh, remaining interpretations of life and remaining loves and desires. And on top of that, the world is ardently seeking to win my heart and affections, to form my insides in accordance with its vision of happiness. Now, what does worship have to do with this? I want to propose it has everything to do with it. Everything to do with this. But this is just the, the first point then that we are being formed. We have been formed. We are being formed in our insides. The second thing I want to point out is that we are formed by our understanding that we are part of the new people of God. Or you could say we are reformed. Or I like the word James Smith uses in his book. We are counterformed in this way. The world is seeking to form us. Our experiences growing up have formed us. Worship counterforms us from the inside out. We are formed first by our understanding that we are part of the new people of God. This we see in the, one of the passages that we read in Hebrews 12. And all of these passages have to do with the intersection of worship and the transformation that comes from worship. Because in Hebrews 10, it's in the passage on page 6, it speaks about our entering the holy places by the blood of Jesus in this uh, central time where we worship and, and proclaim this and enjoy this together, then the result of it and a part, a vital part of it is that we encourage one another and we stir one another up to love and good deeds. So that my insides, my very reason for living, my very shape, the very shape of my life, my very desires and how I'm going to form my life are transformed by my understanding of God in worship. And the same thing in Hebrews 13, so that in one breath he speaks of praises offered up to God, and the next breath praises that have to do with doing good and sharing with others, that they're formed together. As you are formed in praise to this self-giving God, then you are formed as well into a self-giving person. can't have the one without the other. You start praising this self-giving God, you're going to be formed into a self-giving person. But Hebrews 12 talks about where we've come. And it, this is political language, really, uh, that we are now citizens of a new city. We're citizens of a new country. We've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And he says, you have come. You are part of this people. This redefines who you are. You really are not in the first place Americans. Your citizenship is in heaven. Paul reminds this, uh, reminds us of this in Philippians chapter three. And again, it has moral, uh, implications because he says in that passage, he speaks of those whose focus is on earthly things, whose God is their stomach. And then in the next breath he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Interesting juxtaposition. 
Their God is their belly. They're focused on their passions. They're giving themselves over to self-indulgence. What about us? First thing, not about what we desire or what we do or how we perform. It's who we are. It's where we belong. Our citizenship is in heaven. That changes everything. Our focus then is on the one who's coming from that place who's going to transform our bodies. Our focus is on that hope of who, where we belong and where we're headed. And so we have a passion that has replaced the passions of this world. We have a fiery love and expectation that outweighs the expectations and the promises of the evil that surrounds us. We belong to the people of God. This is the same, we feel the same weight in Colossians 3 where he says, you've been raised with Christ, you seek the things above where Christ is. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And there's this idea of seeking the things above. Well, it's not so much geography. It's not so much geography here because he goes on to say, since you are part of that which is above, put to death your earthly things. And then he talks about the sins, uh, impurity and passion and evil desire and anger and wrath and malice. And to put on the new self, which is this new heavenly life as God's chosen ones, putting on forgive, uh, humility and kindness and meekness and patience, etc., But there in Colossians 3 and in Philippians 3, in both cases, he fixes our heart on the citizenship that we have with the people of God. Who you are as the people of God, called out into to form this new city that God is inhabiting. This is the new city that is going to replace all the cities of this world. This is the country, this is the holy nation that will be the only nation in the final day when God removes all things. This is what you are a part of. I like the way some uh, cultures say when you say, where, where is your home? And they don't say, well, I, I live, my address is so-and-so. They say, I stay at 3215 Cockrell or whatever. I stay at. And I love that. Because it's a great way to think about uh, this idea that you belong to this heavenly membership to always have in your mind, I stay at that place. That's where I stay. That's where my heart is. Those are my people. That is my definition now as I live out in this world. I live out in this world and I come together with God's people here to form this new city, this new country, this new nation. Jesus, you know, said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And this has been distorted greatly by uh, the King James Version that I go to prepare a place for you. Uh, There... He says, "There in my Father's house are many mansions, King James says. And you've even heard you know, people talk about, I've got my mansion in heaven. And 
Interestingly, some men supposedly have had visions where God showed them their mansion in heaven. All kind of interesting because it's a mistranslation of the word. I won't explain how that happens. But um, <clears throat> but it, on earth, mansions are generally surrounded by high fences and you enter by a gate and not just anybody can go in there. It's really a terrible picture of what heaven's going to be because heaven is like this. Heaven is interaction. Heaven is unity and glory and entering into each other's lives and celebrating together and pouring yourself out for one another and entering into each other eternally in ways that we can't even imagine. It's an eternal perfected fellowship of the new city of God. And we should think of a place more like a relationship like someone would say to you, you have a place on our team, or even better, there's a place for you in our family. And by that, we don't mean you'll be ignored in a room off the garage where we'll set up a little fridge and a hot plate, even a microwave so you can do your own cooking. We'll even give you a table so you have the place to eat, right? All separate out. That's not what it means, right? We'll give you a place. No, a place in our family means that you will eat with us and you'll go on vacations with us and you will receive presents on your birthday like everybody else. And if you're younger, when you're 12 years old, you'll get that special trip just like our other 12-year-olds will get. You're going to have a place among us. And so that's the way we're to think of this, that you have a place, an integrated place with the people of God here And you're connected with all of those who've gone before. You're a part of them. He has stated in the chapter before in Hebrews 11, he talked about all the Old Testament saints and their faith throughout the years. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, you're a part of this witnessing committee, a community as this witnessing community goes before you and you observe them and see them and now you're a part of them, you continue to live out your life. You're situated exactly in the midst of those people so that you would live out that life even as they have lived out with that life. And so being with this community here, and this is the point is a graphic experiential renewal in the reality that you are in this community worldwide and history-wide. See, this is not just a, this is not just a representation of that uh, community for you and me. This is actually an experience of that community for us. An experience of the community of God that we've become a part of. And we have this hope because we're a part of this community. We have this security because we're a part of this community. That we belong, that we're beloved, that we are living stones connected to other living stones. We have this hope and comfort that we are accepted and beloved as a part of this new city that God is forming. And even Jesus sacrificed himself because of hope. This hope of belonging gives you 
strength and energy and joy to sacrifice yourself for the sake of others. Even Jesus, it says right there in Hebrews 12, says, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we have hope because we are in Christ and joined to Christ and joined to his people. And that hope defines us and shapes us. It gives us a new identity, a new identity that gives us a new character altogether. And then I want to close then. We've talked about how we have this insides that have been formed, but knowing who you are in Christ Jesus, knowing the community that you've come to and are part of, uh, transforms you and reforms you and it counterforms you against. I want to talk more specifically about how we are formed by worship itself and how worship gets to that inside part of you in a way hardly anything else does. And that's what's so important about worship. We come together to be formed and and counterformed in the presence of God. Our focus, of course, is the worship and adoration of God. But it's so encouraging to be thinking as you come to this, I'm submitting to the very way I get reformed into God's image by worship. This is getting to the deepest parts of me in worship so that I can be uh, continually changed into his glory. In worship, we engage in what James Smith calls practices that point the heart. Practices that point the heart. That is, point the heart in new directions of love, new directions of trust, new directions of desire. Our whole selves in worship are emerged in a rehearsal of the gospel together. And so together we are seeking to reorient our insides, to reappoint our insides, you might say, to refashion and remodel our lives according to the gospel story as our imaginations are captured again and again by one other aspect of that story, we come here to be stirred, to be in awe, to do nothing less than engage with the glory of God itself, to see the greatness and goodness of this self-giving God. And we're told, 2 Corinthians 3, that as we behold the glory of God, we are transformed from glory to glory into that same image. So we come here for a transforming engagement with God. No, it's not that we're focusing on the transformation, so, so to speak. We're focusing on the majesty and goodness and greatness of this God. We're exploring what He has done for us in Christ Jesus. We're rehearsing the gracious gospel together through everything that we do in the singing of hymns and the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. In benediction and call to worship, every aspect of it is a rehearsal of the gospel in different ways. And we are transformed. You become like what you admire. 
You simply do. And when you worship and adore and trust in this self-giving God, this Father who has sacrificed His Son, this Son of God who has come and laid His life down, this gracious Holy Spirit who takes that glorious love of the Father and the Son and He lances our heart with it and He fills us with that love and convinces us of that love. When you start adoring and trusting in this God in this way together with the people of God, you start fiddling and rattling the cages of your inner person. You start rattling those ways that you've seen life. Because your story, your conception of life runs headlong into the story of this great God who has given His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so your desires and loves are affected. Your fears are affected. Your sins are affected. I say even your gut is affected. The, the deep down part of you. And you'll find that reactions in your life change. Kindness sprouts out in a, the desert where it had not been before. Rest and calm take residence in a part of your inner neighborhood where they had never been before. And in a few homes in there, fear is evicted. This happens in worship. This happens as you inundate yourself with the gospel of Christ. It's because worship gets inside of you. Your body comes alongside other bodies and your voice joins with other voices in confession and prayer and song. You actually eat bread and drink wine. You hear the call to worship, the assurance of pardon, the final blessing of God, standing with the people of God, responding with the people of God. And you together manifest the new city, the new nation that God has called out to worship Him and represent Him. And it gets inside of you. It's very interesting that both in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, the thing that we think takes place outside of worship, and we read this individually because it says, let the Spirit, uh, don't be drunk with wine, but... Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Colossians 3 says, let the word of Christ rule you. We tend to think of those as, okay, privately, I've got to be sure that the Spirit is filling me and the word is ruling me. But that's not what it says. It says, let the, uh, be filled with the Spirit as you address one another in hymns, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Where does the filling of the Spirit occur in that context? It occurs when you're singing to each other, he says. That's what you think, isn't it, when you sing hymns. I'm going to be filled and equipped by the Holy Spirit as I sing with the people of God today. I dare say very few of us think that way. And he says, the Word will dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You know, music just... How many times have you heard... I hope you hadn't heard this in a long time. But, for instance, Yummy, 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 I've got love in my tummy. A song that you should despise, right? Everything about it. 
And yet, if you hear it on the radio, you may be singing it for a week, driving you nuts. You know, yummy, 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 I got love in my tongue. Dude, why am I doing that, right? But God calls us to bring the word to bear. And you see what he's doing with music is it's going in places where the intellect doesn't alone go. It's going to other parts of you. I saw a fascinating uh, account of a fellow who has Alzheimer's and couldn't remember anything from second to second. In fact, when his uh, family was taking him to this place they were going, he asked dozens of times on the way, where are we going, where are we going, where are we going? He, he couldn't remember anything. Then he walks into this room. There are like 50 men, barbershop uh, group, and he leads the whole thing perfectly. Perfectly sang his part, perfectly led them. Two or three songs, just knew it by heart. Then afterwards, where was I? What did I do? He, knew, he didn't even know what he had done. <laughs> but it had been fused into him in another place, so to speak. We see, what I'm trying to say is that this experience of being together and singing into each other's lives and fusing ourselves to the words of God in song, it does something to us. We should expect God to do something to us. We should submit to this process, this whole glorious opportunity that we, like the people standing before God and worshiping Him in heaven, we're now part of that chorus. And we're being transformed by that chorus. And as we feast upon his glory and we admire this God who gave himself so freely and we rehearse that story of how he gave himself so freely in Christ Jesus and we adore him for it, we are transformed into people more and more that give ourselves away like God gave himself away to us. So we come to worship and we bring our whole selves with other whole selves. We're submitting to God's work in our lives together. We're presenting ourselves to the discipline and shaping of worship. You see, there's a kind of coming and presenting yourself, Lord, I submit to this whole thing of worship with your people for you to have at me, to have at us, to do your great work in our lives together as we seek to worship you. We're all saying together in Psalm 139, search me and know me and see if there be any hurtful way in me. That's not a private prayer. Let's make it a corporate prayer. And Lord, do it in us now. (laughs) Transform us. Rattle our inner cage. Hammer and chisel us in worship. Nourish us in sincerity in worship, O Lord. And we come weak. We come sometimes numb. We don't even want to be here. But come. Come even weak. Come even numb. Come because you're weak and numb. (laughs) Come and say, oh, Lord, rescue me. Lord, use your people. Use this worship to call me to yourself. Bring about that counterformation against the world, against even the way I think about myself. Let me close with just these words from Psalm 115. 
There the psalmist is talking about idols and he says, their idols are the work of silver and gold. And he says, they have eyes, but they can't see. He says, they have, uh, they have mouths, but they don't speak. They have ears, but they don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. They have feet, but they don't walk. And they don't make a sound with their throat. And then here's the interesting thing. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And the idea would be you're going to be just as dead as your idol, just as lifeless, just as full of yourself as you've ever been. You're going to be the same hunk of me that you've always been if you give yourself to anything but this God, this self-giving, glorious God in Christ Jesus. And so our adoration is, as Mike Cosper says, a declaration of war. God calls us to worship out of a world that's clamoring for us to worship a pantheon of idols. When the church hears God's call and begins to sing in response, it's simultaneously an affirmation of God's worth and a declaration of the worthlessness of idols around us. John Whitliet explains, Every time we sing praise to the triune God, we're asserting our opposition to anything that would attempt to stand in God's place. Every hymn of praise is a little anti-idolatry campaign. <laughs> I like that. And then he says, when we're singing praise God from whom all blessings flow, we're also saying down with the gods from whom no blessings flow. <laughs> so we're saying praise this God from whom all blessings flow, down with all gods from whom no blessings flow. This is the God we focus on. We are the new people of God. We're the new city of God. And we're now to turn out to this world and display to them what it means to be a human being in the image of God. The God who's the self-giving God. That's our glory. We're the light of the world. We're the city set on a hill. And it begins and ends and is flourished and sustained by the worship that we give together as the people of God. What a glorious, glorious opportunity we have to be a part of this people. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would constantly renew us. We thank you for the promise of worship with your people. Forgive us, Lord, that we downplay this. Forgive us that we do not see how critical it is to our very life, that they are things that we practice and do in this place that get into parts of our being that nothing else does, Lord, because you call us to worship together with your people, to be changed by your presence and in the presence of one another, that your spirit would fill us your word would rule us as we are ministering to one another in hymns and songs. You minister to us through every part of this worship as a corporate body. And you form us and counterform us by your sovereign grace. Lord, 
give us new expectancy, a new submission, a new humility to give ourselves to the discipline and purposes of worship as you have created it for us. And even as we explore it in the next couple of weeks, Lord, further to see the different parts and how they work in our lives, bless us to see the glory of God breaking out in worship. For your name's sake we pray. Amen.